We're keeping on in our series in 1 Peter called Hope for Exiles. Really, in 1 Peter, um, the Apostle Peter is giving us a heavenly perspective on our earthly suffering. I, I heard a quote earlier this week. A pastor said, for the Christian, your glory days are always ahead of you. That's what Peter reminds us. Our glory days aren't in the past, but they're always ahead of us as we journey towards heaven. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So you could open up your copy of God's word to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it for us, and then afterwards I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and then you all will say, thanks be to God. So hear God's word from 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, please show us Jesus this morning. Help us to taste the goodness of the Lord. And would you cause us to overflow with praise to him this morning and throughout this week. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. About 12 years ago, I was sitting in my dorm with my Bible open in a place called Roseville, Minnesota. I was a freshman in college. I wasn't a Christian yet. But for months leading up to this day, God had been turning up the intensity on my spiritual hunger. I had my Bible open to Psalm 34, and I was looking for a grain of hope that there is something that could satisfy my soul. I slowed down at verse 8, and this is what I read. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And with that, I had a taste of hope. I could taste something in God that would leave me satisfied. Well, 12 years later, life isn't as simple as it was then when I was a freshman in college. There have been many ups. There have been many downs. And sometimes I overcomplicate my walk with Jesus. But as I was studying this passage for this week, it's as if the Spirit of God was reminding me that, Elliot, tasting the Lord's goodness is not just the beginning of your walk with Christ, but it's the middle 
and the end of your walk with him. And in this passage, Peter, through the Spirit, is telling us to taste and speak that the Lord is good. Taste and speak that the Lord is good. And this passage is in three movements. First, he's going to talk about tasting Christ's goodness, then building a house, and then proclaiming his praises. So let's look at verses one through three. That first word is therefore. So Peter is pointing back to what he said earlier about being born again through the gospel. And now he goes on to talk about growing up in the gospel. So for Christians, the good news about Jesus is what makes us alive to him. And the good news of Jesus makes us grow in him. And one of my favorite summaries of the gospel is actually in 1 Peter. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, this is one of the simplest and sweetest summaries of the gospel to me in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3, 18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us. Why did Jesus suffer for our sin? That he might bring you to God. That is the good news that makes us alive, born again, and that's the good news that feeds us week after week in our sin and in our suffering. Jesus the righteous has taken our place on the cross for us, the unrighteous, so that he gets sin out of the way and bring us to God. And so this is the gospel Peter talks about in these first few verses that helps us to grow up into salvation. But for us to grow up and to feed on the word, we first have to get rid of destructive desires. Look at verse one. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So when we become alive to Jesus, that means we have to start putting some parts of us to death. The Bible in some places talks about sanctification, growing like Jesus, as taking off dirty clothes and putting on clean clothes. Here it talks about getting, it's kind of like getting rid of junk food and taking on like, you know, wholesome food. He gives us a list of spiritual junk food. Malice, that's having ill will towards people. Deceit, that's manipulating others to your advantage. Hypocrisy, not living with integrity. Envy, wanting what another person has in a sinful way. Slander, making false statements to damage someone's reputation. What do all these vices, all these sins have in common? They're all contrary to the sincere brotherly love that he talks about in chapter 1, verse 22. Peter is calling us to get rid of these desires, get rid of these desires to seek our own praise, our promotion to climb over each other. And he calls us instead, if you look at verse two, to be like newborn infants, to be like newborn babies. Babies have no ambition. You don't have any of the babies in the nursery slandering one another, at least the super little ones. They just have one desire, milk. They want to eat. And so kind of paradoxically, Peter says to grow up, you have to be like a baby. To grow up, you have to be like a baby. Babies have a one-track mind. They want milk. They're hungry. Elsewhere in the Bible, milk is talked about like really basic or elementary Christian teachings. That's not kind of uh, Peter's meaning here. He's just saying for our whole life, we feed on the milk of the word. 
And this is how we grow up, to be like Jesus. And what is this pure milk? He says, desire the pure milk of the word. We are to, as a community, long desire for, thirst after the pure milk of the word. And as we drink it, as we take in the gospel week in and week out, we become stronger and look more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. But where, where does this nourishment from the milk come from? Look at, look at verse 3. He says, desire this milk if you've tasted that the Lord is good. He's telling Christians, he's not calling into question their faith. He's saying, since you've tasted the goodness of the Lord Jesus, we'll see the Lord is pointing to Jesus later. Since you've tasted the goodness of Jesus, desire more of him in the word. This goodness is his kindness, his gentleness, his love for us. It's his kind heart towards us who feeds us and nourishes our souls. In a world of slander and malice, ill will, that just values you for what you do, what you produce, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I just want you. And so that nourishes our souls. And so I hope you're seeing that longing for the pure milk of the word is a longing to meet Jesus in the word. We don't want just Bible studies or Bible facts. We want to meet the risen Jesus in the scriptures. I love one of my favorite um, older theologians. He's with the Lord now, Edmund Clowney. He says this, the word of the Lord constantly presents the Lord of the word. Let me say that again. The word of the Lord, the Bible, constantly presents the Lord of the word. Coming to the word is coming to the Lord. So we are after, in this community, the goodness of Jesus when we open up our Bibles in our homes, on Sundays, at our missional communities. Personally, we want to taste the goodness of Jesus. Kind of as an aside, um, it's fairly normal, if you have any interest in faith, to, to ask yourself every once in a while, am I really born again? Like you hear people talk about being born again. And that's a, that's a totally natural question to have. Well, here, Peter gives us kind of one test or one way we can know whether we're born again or not. He says, those who are born again have a longing, a deep thirst for the word of God. So do you just have a hunger, an inward thirst to spend time with Jesus in the word? If you do, that's a sign that you are born again, that you have new life and new desires. And if you don't, come to Jesus. Ask him to give you those spiritual taste buds, and he loves to answer those prayers, as he answered them for me about 12 years ago. After reading Psalm 34, praying, he gave me a taste of the goodness of the Lord. All right, so this is kind of a weird command. This command in uh, the CSV, CSV, like newborn infants, desire. That's the only command in all these 10 verses. He gives one command to the church. He says, desire. And this is, this is an interesting command uh, because he's telling us to desire the desirable. He's saying like, want Jesus. But we know that Jesus is goodness for us. Uh, I hope you could kind of see the weirdness of the command when I put it like this. So my, my boy, my oldest, he loves burgers. He loves five guys. The kid just gets a burger, no cheese, no nothing, just ketchup, patty, buns, 
And for like the next three minutes, he's in a trance. Like he's just enjoying that thing. This command would be like me going to my boy and saying, hey, G, hey, Graham, desire burgers. He already wants the burger. Isn't that redundant? Why would God command us to desire something that's already desirable? Here's, here's two reasons, I think. One, sometimes we eat junk and we lose our appetite for the good stuff. Sometimes we eat junk and lose our appetite for the good stuff. Like my boy who's tempted to eat chips on the way to five guys. And we're saying, no, son, desire the good stuff. The burger is coming. And with that list above, with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, sometimes we feed on self-promotion, self-ambition, getting glory for ourselves, and we lose that appetite for the good stuff, Jesus Christ. So that's one of the reasons God says desire the desirable stuff. And then the second reason is we have a good, good father. Even when we want Jesus, he keeps inviting us. It's like a father inviting his kids to a buffet, all you can eat, surf and turf. Desire that, let's eat. And the father is constantly inviting us to Jesus to taste and see that he is good. So what are those things in your life that are contrary to spiritual appetite for Jesus? Think about that this week. What type of spiritual junk food are you eating that's keeping you from longing for more of him? And get rid of that. Instead, desire the pure milk of the word and better, taste Jesus. So desiring the pure milk of the word leads us into the Lord's presence. And that's where Peter takes us next, building a house. So we see tasting Christ's goodness. Now we're going to look at verses four through eight, building the house. Now, the big idea in these four verses, four through eight, is that God is building a house for himself on Jesus, and Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter, himself called the rock by Jesus, is pointing us to the great rock, Jesus, the cornerstone. And he's drawing from all these Old Testament passages on this rock imagery to make an argument that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And we, the church, are his house, a household of holy priests. So he begins in verse 4 by saying, as you come to him, a living stone. I love that. That's a description of what we do every Sunday. As we come to him, we're coming to Jesus together. He is the stone. He's called the living stone. That's super weird language for us, especially if we're not used to the Old Testament. So he's a stone. He's the foundation of the church, but he's the living stone. He's the resurrected rock of the church. And as we come to him, we're like living stones, like boulders that God is placing together to make a spiritual house where he could dwell with his people. And he sends us out as a priesthood of believers, representing him to each other and to the world. So a spiritual house, that's what we're called. God's building a house. A house tells us a lot about the owner. So this, this Friday, for the first time, I went to the John Hay estate in Newbury, right on Sunapee. Um, John Hay, how many of you have heard of him? Yeah. Oh, wow. Impressive. Okay, that's good. I was expecting zilch. I hadn't heard of John Hay. He was a secretary for Abraham Lincoln. And him and his family, they built a vacation home right, right in Newbury in the Sunapee, you know, Sunapee Lakes area. And it's just an amazing home. It's open to the public. 
got to pay a little entrance fee. But this home told me about John Hay and his family, even though I've never met him, because a house tells you about the owner. So one part of the design of the home was every single room has a window facing a garden. Every single of the 22 rooms has a window facing a garden. The Hay family loved gardens. The house is big, 22 rooms and 80 plus acres. The family had money. The home is set kind of in the woods and on the edge of Sunapee away from any other homes. The Hayes enjoyed seclusion and they prioritized rest from the public. So I learned about them from their home. So what does God's house, God's spiritual house, tell us about him? God chose Jesus as the cornerstone of his house, the foundation that sets the trajectory for the whole thing. The cornerstone is the most important piece of a home. Jesus Christ is the most beloved, important person in the world to God the Father. God chooses you, Christian, to be part of his house. He loves you and wants to dwell with you. Sometimes in the midst of life and its hardships, we forget that God chooses us because he loves us. He likes us. He wants to be with us. Finally, we learn from the house that the house is sturdy. God's spiritual house will never be torn down. God is building his church on the strong shoulders of his son, Jesus. Jesus himself says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is such good news for us in a world that feels so unsafe and unstable. You are being built into a home that will last forever. We are exiles in this world, but we're looking toward a permanent kingdom. In verse four, it says, Jesus, the living stone, was rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. Some translations say chosen and precious to God. And as you go through this section, you'll see that language of rejection and choosing. In verse 6, 7, and 8, Peter draws from three different places in the Old Testament to prove that though Jesus was rejected by the leaders of his day, God chose him to be the cornerstone of his house. Most of the people in Jesus' day rejected him. They threw him aside. They rejected him even to the point of crucifying him on a cross. But the father looked at his son in the grave and says, he is precious to me. He is chosen, and I'm going to resurrect him. I, uh, a few, several years back, I worked for a stone company called Blackstone uh, Works or whatever. And I worked for them for a couple of seasons and we'd build boulder walls and stone patios and all that. And we'd prepare the ground for a boulder wall or a retaining wall. And then we'd have the, the truckload come and dump all these boulders, all different shapes and sizes. I wasn't the master builder. I was like a grunt, grunt guy. But the master builder there, he would just start picking through the stones and looking at them. And finally, he'll settle on a stone, kind of like a cornerstone that would set the trajectory, the height, the direction of the whole wall. And usually it was a beautiful stone. Well, imagine if, if the master builder looked at a stone, like kind of scoffed at it, it's like, that's a pebble, that's ridiculous, and just threw it to the side. Sometimes we'd, we'd throw rocks all over a lawn as we're looking at the different sizes. 
Imagine if he threw one aside and started building, and when he finished the wall, he realized that that was the beautiful stone. That was the foundation piece, the cornerstone that he should have chosen. Well, that's what happened with Jesus. He was discarded. He was viewed as nothing. He was crucified. And yet the Lord tore down the whole establishment and set Jesus as the cornerstone. And what's beautiful about this, this rejected and yet chosen theme in 1 Peter is one of Peter's main emphases in this book is that Jesus is not only our savior, but he's our example in suffering. So check this. Jesus is rejected, yet he's chosen by the savior. And so too, his people, his sojourners are rejected, but chosen by God. If we could pull it up in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27, it says this. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You may have been rejected by your earthly father. But in Christ, you are chosen and precious to your heavenly father. You may have been rejected by friends for following Jesus. But Jesus chooses you to be his friend. We may be rejected by this nation in this contentious political climate. But God has chosen us as his precious, prized people. This was good news for first century rejects, and it's good news for us 21st century rejects. Though we feel rejected by family and friends, by political parties, as we follow King Jesus, remember that you are chosen and precious in God's sight. There are two ways to ultimately respond to the head cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. We could build our lives on him by believing in him, or we could reject him. For those who stake their lives on him, you build all your hope, you build all your future on Jesus, you have to hear this. You are not crazy. You are not crazy if you build on Jesus. You are deeply sane. And you have to hear that. Because with people in a world that rejects Jesus, you're told over and over again, do you seriously believe that? Jesus is chosen and precious in God's sight. Let's take God's word over man's word. And for those of you who are rejecting Jesus, it says here that you stumble over him. You disobey the word of the gospel that says, come to me, repent. Verse eight says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This this verse deals with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Although God is sovereign over all things and in who he chooses, the people he chooses, we also have a responsibility in responding to the good news. And part of that good news today is if you've spent your whole life rejecting Jesus, you can receive him today. See him through God's eyes. Not the critic's eyes, but see Jesus through the Father's eyes as chosen and precious. Taste his goodness in taking all your sin on on the cross and bringing you close to the Father. 
For those of you friends who are rejecting Jesus, obey the word of the gospel today. Turn from your sins and turn to him. So all those who receive Jesus, who build their lives on this cornerstone, they become a priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. That's what he says in verse five. And he fills out what these spiritual sacrifices are in verses nine and 10. Let's turn from building a home to proclaiming his praises. In verses nine and 10, Peter lays out more in depth who we are and what we're called to. So look at verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's taking all those, those phrases, chosen race, royal priesthood, that were applied to God's covenant people in the Old Testament, and he's applying it to all Christians now, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And this would have been staggering news to any Jew or any ancient person because the new covenant democratizes royalty and ministry. If you were an ancient Jew, there was only a select group of people who could be priests. If you're an ancient person or even in countries today that have kings or queens or royalty, there's only one king and there's only one queen. What Jesus does for us is he makes all who believe in him royalty, kings and queens. He makes all who believe in him a priesthood, a team. All of us have access to God through Jesus. All of us are called to serve him. All of us have a ministry of mercy. And as you see in verse 10, as we experience the mercy of God, we bring that mercy out as his representatives in this world. So we are a royal priesthood, kings, queens, ministers, representatives. And what's our calling? Why did God choose us? Verse 9 says, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse says the reason God saved you was to sing his praises. Our primary calling as Christians is to worship God. We proclaim specifically the praises of the one who brought us out of darkness, out of sin, out of death, into light, eternal life in his presence. This verse has so much to say about our evangelism, our witness, our mission. Our worship on Sunday is connected to our witness on Monday. The more we taste Christ's goodness today, the more powerfully we'll speak of his goodness tomorrow. Edmund Clowney, again, he puts it like this. We could pull it up. He says, the heart of evangelism is doxological. Do doxology, doxological, it just means praise, worship. So the heart of our evangelism is doxological. So many of us, when someone from up front talks about the mission, sharing the good news of Jesus, we get like shortness of breath, our palms get sweaty, and we get a little dizzy. It's like, oh, I don't want to do that. that. That's a common experience. I have that quite often. But this, this, help, this passage helps us step out from fear and step into joy. Many of the early Christians got a case of the can't help it's. You know what this is, the can't help it's. Like, just imagine you're at a cookout and you ask a friend about a hobby that you're like mildly interested in. Like, oh, how's Frisbee golf or how's golf or, how, you know, whatever. Those are just things for me. And they'll just start talking about it. And you're like, okay. And then they keep going. And you just realize like, it doesn't matter as much that I'm listening. 
I just have to stand here. They just love the hobby so much, they can't help but talking about it. If you like Frisbee or golf or golf, I'm sorry. I'll enjoy listening to you. <laughs> but that brother or sister has the can't help us with whatever hobby they have. As we read through the New Testament, we see that many of the early disciples had the can't help it. If you look at Acts 4, 19 through 20, I didn't put it up, that's my bad, but Acts 4, 19 through 20, Peter, who wrote this book, and the Apostle John, they got a case of the can't help it. Hear this. After the Sanhedrin told them to stop talking about Jesus, they said this. Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard of Jesus Christ, the word of life. What would it look like if our witness was fueled by worship? if we tasted the Lord's goodness so intensely, if we felt his love deep down in our bones that we couldn't help but speak of his goodness to our neighbors, where we weren't ruled by fear, but love for our neighbor and love for Jesus. So for an application with this, commit to this simple prayer. Lord, make my evangelism overflow for my worship. Let's pray that together. In your own hearts, in your, in your missional communities, as you have lunch today, Lord, make my evangelism overflow for my worship. Let me say with Peter and John, I can't help but speak what I have heard from Jesus because we taste the goodness of Jesus and then we speak the goodness of Jesus. And notice he says, we do this together so that you may proclaim. That you is plural, Mission is a team sport. When Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, pardon the southern jargon, but he says, he's really saying, I will make y'all fishers of men. This is a team sport. And so in our missional communities, on playgrounds, as we go out to restaurants, in our homes, in our neighborhood cookouts, let's go out together, invite some believers, and together proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. One example, I just, one example of this team mission of proclaiming Jesus is, is the people who are part of the good uplifting times here at River of Grace. Some of you are extremely gifted from the Holy Spirit at inviting people to Jesus, inviting people to the church. And I, and I love meeting new people from your community because you can't help but just invite people in because you've tasted of the goodness of Jesus. What would that look like to spill out into other ministries at our church? For many of us, what Peter lays out for us, if we're honest, is almost too good to be true. You're a king or you're a queen in the kingdom of God. You are part of his priesthood or you're supposed to speak his praises from joy and not fear. Our experience is often the opposite. We don't feel like royalty, but we feel rejected. We, we don't feel spiritually full and we're welling up with joy in our mission, but we feel depleted. We're fighting just to praise God, much less have our praise spill out to others. 
But this, in 1 Peter, is what the Holy Spirit is calling us to. This is what he's leading us into. And Jesus knows your experience. In Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he says, happy are all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Jesus sees your hunger, he sees your thirst, and he invites you to be satisfied. I wonder if you notice that Peter does not say, taste and see that the Lord is good. He just says, you've tasted the Lord's goodness. And I wonder if he says, just taste, because earlier he says, you haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. He recognizes that hunger you have. He recognizes that you often feel rejected. And he says, you taste now, and you will see then. So let's go to the Spirit of God, and let's just pray that our evangelism, our praise, our, our evangelism would overflow from our worship. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we read your words, and if we're honest, it feels so far from our experience, and we wonder if something's wrong with us or if something's wrong with the word. But neither of those are true. You are calling us by your spirit to have an experience with Jesus, to taste his goodness, and to overflow in worship, both within this gathering and when we go out. So would you send your Holy Spirit to help us taste and one day see that the Lord is good. Amen.